Welcome back to another episode of Revealed Apologetics. I'm your host, Eli Ayala, and I want to welcome you guys back. I have another returning guest. I have Jeremy, the Black Doctor. Um, and uh, I had him on when we had the Protestant panel discussion. Um, and uh, you guys definitely want to check that discussion out. It was kind of a, a roundtable discussion in defense of Protestantism. And so if folks are interested in that, especially if you find yourself um, speaking with Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox uh, folks, that conversation is going to be um, very useful to you. So I just encourage folks to go back and check out that episode. Also had Paul Facey on last time we went live, and that was an excellent discussion as well. And so um, I highly recommend uh, you check out that video as well. We interacted with um, some points that were made by Jay Dyer, who is a noted uh, Eastern Orthodox apologist. And so that was a lot of fun. And uh, Paul had me in stitches with a spot on impression of Jay Dyer. I was impressed. It was really good. So if for, for any reason, if, if you don't want to watch the whole thing, just watch the video, search the video just so that you can see the impression. It was so cool. Um, so, uh, but I'm very happy to have my guest on uh, tonight. We're going to be talking about a super important topic. It's kind of a staple of Christianity. Obviously, we all affirm what we call the deity of Jesus Christ. Um, but we do know that this is a doctrine that is challenged by heretics, challenged by Muslims. Um, it, it It's challenged from a bunch of different directions. And so um, I really am looking forward to kind of getting into this topic. Jeremy, I actually watched the debate with Jeremy uh, where he was debating a Muslim, and he did a stellar job defending the deity of Christ on multiple levels. And so I was like, you know what? I need to get him on to talk about this, um, this topic. So um, I'm like you guys, you guys watch this channel to learn. I learn so much from my guests. And so I get super excited when I'm able to, to ask my questions and see how these, these uh, you know, my guests give these answers that are clear and biblical. Um, and I greatly benefit from it. I'm a teacher. So I get to use a lot of this stuff in the classroom once I learn it from others. So I'm very grateful for the wider body of Christ. God has blessed us with so many um, learned people. So uh, without further ado, let me introduce the black doctor, uh, Jeremy. Uh, how are you doing, brother? I'm doing well. How about you? I'm doing wonderful. I am thankful to the Lord that it is Friday. Um, so it's, this is my Sabbath. It's the day of rest because I'm a teacher. I that. I'm scot-free after I, I leave my job, uh, which I love, but uh, I'm happy it's Friday. Uh, what have you been up to? What what are what are you doing? Uh, what are the topics that you're covering now? Maybe uh, you can let folks know where they can find you, and then we'll just jump right into this topic. Right. Uh, so for those who know me and those who don't, I am Jeremiah Short, the Black Doctor. Uh, you guys can find me on TikTok uh, at BlackDoctor21, as well as my YouTube channel under the Black Doctor. Um, I also run a Patreon where I do um, audiobooks of the early church fathers as well as teach, uh, teach church history. Um, so I've been doing a, a, a lot of great stuff. Um, I'm still in seminary. Class actually just started back um, on Thursday. So getting back into the swing of things um, and still trying to engage in apologetics with uh, our friends from Clubhouse um, TikTok and, and everywhere else. And especially here on YouTube, I actually just reached over 500 subscribers. So that is a, that is an absolute blessing on, on what, uh, 500 subscribers on what on, on YouTube, uh, on YouTube. All right. Excellent. And how long have you been doing YouTube? You said, uh, I haven't, I haven't specifically been doing explicit content on YouTube until around mm -hmm. 
the end of December, pretty much when I started my Patreon. Mm-hmm. Uh, my my YouTube generally was the place where I put most of my lessons that I do um, at church because right. I'm the pastoral intern and interim youth director uh, for my church. So mm-hmm. um, I do I did a specific uh, series on woke theology uh-huh. uh, for my hot topic series. If you can find that, also some of my old sermons. Um, and so it's a it's a repository for a lot of sermons that myself and my church do. And it's also a place where you can find um, most of the content that I'm doing that's not specifically on YouTube or or specifically on TikTok or my Patreon. That's excellent. Hey, I wouldn't mind listening to an audio book with your voice. You're very, when I listen to your debate with that Muslim, you're so Mansoor, you incredibly missed my argument. I'm like, he's so articulate <laughs> and expressive. I'm like, I like that. I can listen to you uh, uh, do a, uh, an audio book. Uh, this is I a Liberbox recording. <laughs> <laughs> that was actually, I, it, it's weird because I was instantly thinking about, you know, getting with Liberbox, um, which, which they do, which they do their audiobooks for like for free. Yeah. And I'm thinking that's great. But what if I also make money off of this? Yeah. So I, I, I started my own Patreon and started doing my own thing. And it's actually, it's been pretty well. Excellent. Excellent. Someone's asking real quick. Uh, are you on rumble? I just discovered rumble. Um, I don't have, any I news. have recently discovered rumble, so I'm not necessarily on there. I'm okay. trying to, well, of course I'm trying to spread out to everywhere I could. Um, but also try to make sure that I have enough time to continue to, uh, do my proper schooling and, and mm-hmm. things of that nature. So mm-hmm. I might go on rumble, but it, it really does depend on how much time I have. Right, right, right. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's jump into this topic. I mean, um, I was just speaking with my students today and discussing the, dif- the, the distinction between essential doctrine and non-essential doctrine. Non-essential doctrine, post-mill, pre-mill, do you dip a baby? Do you not dip a baby for your paedo-baptist, right. credo-baptist? Important, but not uh, definitional to what it means to be a Christian. Right. Not so with the deity of Christ. Why don't you explain why? Um, before we kind of jump into the just a more comprehensive case, why don't you explain why the deity of Christ is what we would categorize as an essential doctrine of the Christian faith? Right. The deity of Christ essentially, well, in its core, is an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. Jesus hinges the true faith based upon himself. He asks his disciples this simple question, who do you say that I am? And he then says to the to the Pharisees, to the Jews, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So he hinges people recognizing who he is, recognizing who Jesus is, is is the core of your salvation. And the the apostles continue to talk about this. The apostle Paul says that those who believe in a false Christ do not have the right spirit. And First uh, John is incredibly clear about this. Those who deny that Jesus has come in the flesh are antichrist. So there are many false Christs running around, but only a true Christ, someone who really believes in what Jesus said he was, can truly save. Mm. Excellent. So so let's go into, uh, I, I, we were dis- discussing earlier today, um, I entitled mm-hmm. this A Comprehensive Case for the Deity of Christ. Um, let's kind of kind of start I'm going to start kind of narrow and then work out a little more broadly. Can you give us the run-of-the-mill generic texts that one would go to first when showing that the Bible teaches that Jesus is God? And then perhaps we can branch off from that to go to the more obscure elements of Scripture, maybe some of the Old Testament passages or, or you know, things where we can kind of also demonstrate the deity of Christ 
um, you know, Old Testament or some obscure passages in the New Testament or something like that. So right. explicit text and ones that when you actually look a little closer, like, wow, this actually this actually demonstrates the deity of Christ as well. And then from right. there, we're going to branch off from uh, theological defense, the coherency of the concept. And then the defense of this concept as what the early church believed. We can maybe look at some of the creeds and what and what those said about uh, the deity of Christ and the two natures of Christ and things like that. Right. So why don't we start with some explicit biblical text and then work our way out from there? So some of the explicit uh, explicit biblical texts that we can look at just that easily come to mind um, is John chapter one verse one. All of us love to go to John chapter one uh, verse one, and we and, and and it's for good reason. Um, if I may, um, sure. let me see. Share the yeah, let me see if I can, uh, if I can share my screen. I've been actually been doing a lot of stuff on, um, my work on olive tree or, or the app mm. olive tree. Love olive tree um, yeah. yeah, this, this gives me the NA 28, which is the, the Greek rendering of the new Testament and the English beside it. Mm. So just I could honestly spend our entire session on John chapter one, verse one, but let me give you a quick overview. Uh, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. We can easily simply tell you uh, just by reading the prologue of John that the word is Jesus, as we see in John 1 14 and the word became flesh. But it says here in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. So the word is with someone called God. And the word was God. So specifically, if we're going to say, well, if Jesus, it, find me a passage that says Jesus is God, here it is. Mm. And the word was God. But uh, some some of our friends, whether they're Muslim or Jehovah's Witnesses or, or, or others, try to argue against that from the English text. All right. Now, can I interject real quick? Because Go you ahead. just mentioned Jehovah's Witness. I always hear various apologists say that when you're talking to a Jehovah's witness and you're trying to demonstrate the deity of Christ, don't go to John one, one because mm. they're so familiar. Would you agree with that? Or, or you can kind of see where they're coming from, but you still see value in going to this text. What, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah. On that? Yeah. I, I, I understand that um, a lot of people are hesitant to go to this passage because the Jehovah's witnesses love to try to argue from this passage. Mm -hmm. But if you understand, just like a uh, have a basic understanding of, of the Greek language, mm -hmm. um, you have nothing to be afraid of. Because what you can actually do here is show that when the Jehovah's Witness tries to argue particular arguments from this passage, that if they were consistent, they would shoot themselves in the foot, metaphorically. Mm. So let's let's actually demonstrate that. Let, let's split John chapter one into, well, John chapter one, verse one into three parts, okay. three phrases. The first one in the beginning was the word in RK ain halagos. I want to point something out here with the word ain. The word ain here is the imperfect active indicative form of I me to be or to exist. So basically it's saying in the, in the beginning, which is harking back to Genesis, even as far back as you can place the beginning of time, mm -hmm. the word already was in existence. So this already argues against the, the Jehovah's Witness to say that Jesus was eternal. He was not the first created. Instead, he's eternal. He comes before the creation. Uh, John 1, 1b, kai halagos ein pros theon. The term pros here is very uh, is is very good because 
the the genitive plus plus the accusative, which means uh, the term Theon here, Tom Theon, is in the the accusative case, which means that it's the direct object of the phrase. So basically, what this means is that the word is with, or as many uh, as many scholars have noted, face to face with, mm-hmm. in a relationship with, and in communion with somebody else who is called God. And then we get to John one one C, which is basically the the main um, the main point of conflict between many who deny the deity of Christ. Kai theos ein halagos. Now, many, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, try to say that because the word theos here does not have the definite article here, like ton does here or uh, halagos does here or here in John 1.1c, that it means that the word is a god right. or, or something like that. But number one, if you're going to argue that, then you're going to have to argue that um, John is a polytheist. Which, as we know, John is a monotheistic Jew. He's not that. Right. But you're also forgetting a crucial Greek rule that you would know uh, in Greek 3, which is called Caldwell's rule, which is basically arguing that because the word theos here or any other word is a an arthurist preverbal predicate nominative. Now, what do I mean by that? Let's break that phrase down. You got to break that down because people think you'd be speaking in tongues, bro. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Presbyterian, not a Pentecostal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't tell. With the, with the... <laughs> Go for it, man. Um, but an arthurus, it means that it just doesn't have the definite article. Hmm. Pre-verbal. It comes before the verb in the sentence. Hear the word ain. Predicate which means that when it's translated, it goes to the end of the sentence, like it is here in John chapter 1, verse 1. And it's the predicate nominative. It's in the nominative case. It's describing how it fits within the sentence. And so we have another, we have a similar phrase or a similar construction uh, in 1 John, where it says, he who does not love does not know God, because God is love. The direct translation would be, and love is God. But the term love there does not have the um, uh, uh, the definite article. And so what it's doing is that it is describing the nature of God. God is not a love. God is as to his nature, love. And so we see here, in, in in John 1 1, Caiphaeus and Halagos, that the word is as to his nature deity. It's explicitly stating that the that the word is not the same person as the Father, mm-hmm. but has the same nature as him. Many uh many scholars like Martin Luther and even uh Warner Wallace have noticed that this is the only way where John could have communicated that Jesus was God, but not the same person as the father. Mm, And Martin Luther notes that in this phrase, he, um, he avoids both modalism and Arianism in one simple phrase. We then see in John chapter one, uh, verse two, he was in the beginning with God. Again, a repetition of John chapter one, verse one. And then verse three, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made 
Here, the term is dia, which means uh, with the accusative um, or, or the genitive, I mean, through or by means of. Dia plus the genitive in Greek means that he is the personal means, the personal agent of creation. We find this construction used not only here in John chapter 1, but also in Hebrews chapter 1 and Colossians 1, 15 and 16 and 17, where Jesus is the, the personal agent of creation. We see in the Old Testament that Yahweh says that he alone stretched out the heavens and formed the world by himself. So if Jesus is active in creation, he by necessity must be Yahweh mm. alongside the Father, as Scripture notes. That's excellent. That's excellent. So we shouldn't be afraid to go into John 1.1, 1, 1, and you don't need to have a comprehensive understanding of the Greek to kind of point out some of those elements, although it is useful to have some acquaintance. I did take some Greek when I was in seminary, but I lost it all. Uh, I could read what's on the page. I just don't remember what the what stuff on the page means. <laughs> right, right. And that's that's something that I'm always um, that I'm always rep repeating, not only to myself, but to others. But when it comes to Greek, you have to use it or you lose it. That's right. That's and, right. and that's why I'm so grateful uh, for starting apologetics early in my uh, in my study so that I ha actually have a means mm. or a reason to use Greek yeah. uh, in my daily life. Excellent. Excellent. So, so what other passages, explicit passages that we can go to? So John 1, 1, John 1, 14, uh, mm -hmm. where else, where else can we point people to? And would you like uh, to keep that, this up on the screen? Sure. Um, yep. let's go to John. Well, first let's go to John chapter 20, because I think this is, this is some of the most explicit stuff. Um, let's go here. Uh, here we go. <clears throat> At the end of John chapter 20, Jesus talks, well, John talks about doubting Thomas. And here we get some of the most beautiful phrases about Jesus. Let's look at verse, uh, beginning at verse 24. Okay. Now Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, because you have you believed, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So we see John Thomas in, uh, in John chapter 20, verse 28, specifically call Jesus his Lord, and his God, literally in the Greek, ha kuriasmu kai ha theosmu, the Lord of me and the God of me. John, oh, but Jeremy, but Jeremy, but Jeremy, no, 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 no. That's that's not what it says. Thomas was 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 expressing awe. Oh God! Oh my God! Is you hear, you hear that one? Oh, most definitely. <laughs> and, and I, I I wonder, like, how many how many times have 
in scripture do we see uh, a monotheistic Jew take the Lord's name in vain? Right. And he's not even corrected on this. Jesus says, you believe because you see, blessed are those who believe and don't see. So he's actually right. accepting, you know, these titles. Right. And yeah. as we see, this is how John actually bookends his text. Mm. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, mm -hmm. and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what John is doing is connecting the phrase Son of God to him being true deity. So th there, there can't be any clearer statements than this, mm. aside from what we find in the book of Revelation. Right. I, I love going to this passage because Muslims always say, where does Jesus explicitly say in the Bible, I am God, or where he says, worship me? Mm. I just turn them to uh, to Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, and ask, him, ask them, even in the Quran, who is described as the first and the last? And they will simply say, Allah. And I say, we agree. In the Bible, only God can say that he is the first That's and the right. last. And yet here in the book of Revelation, this same John who wrote the gospel of John is in the spirit on the Lord's day. And Jesus appears to him in a vision. And what I find amazing, because I actually preached on this, he describes Jesus the same way that Yahweh is described by the Old Testament prophets. Mm. And here he says in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he, he laid his right hand upon me, showing that he had true flesh, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Mm. So we see here, Jesus uses a specific term that is only used for God, the first and the last, for himself. That's awesome. Well, you know what the problem is, Jeremy? You're quoting from the Gospel of John, and you are quoting from Revelation that is also written by John. You are quoting from the books that have a development of high Christology, but you will not touch the other Gospels, the earliest Gospel, the Gospel of Mark, which does not say any of these things. And so when you look at the Gospel of Mark, you see as you move along through the other Gospels, there is growth, there is embellishment. In one sense, Jesus is called teacher. He's called rabbi. And then in the Gospel of John, he's saying crazy things like before Abraham was, I am. Uh, how can you address that, this idea that John is later? I remember when I was in, when I was in college, I was in community college. It wasn't a Christian school by any means. And I took mm -hmm. a, a history of the Bible class. And, um, you know, the teacher said that Jesus never claimed to be God. And I, I raised my hand this before I got into apologetics and stuff. I was like, oh, in the gospel of John, he's like, well, no, you can't quote from the gospel of John because the gospel of John is the latest, right? It's the latest of the gospels. And so you have development there. But if you go to the earlier gospels, Jesus never, you know, claims to be uh, divine. How would you interact with, uh, with that? And by doing so, you're giving us more of our explicit passages or implicit passages there in the New Testament. Right. I, I love this. I love this argument because the only thing I have to do, because they say, you know, you don't even go to the gospel of Mark, which is the first gospel written, which historically it's not, it's Matthew. Um, and it doesn't say anything about the deity of Christ. That's a good point. I thought, okay, yes, I agree. Yes, there's Mark in priority, but that's not the only view there. We have early sources 
um, that suggests Matthew it was the first written. And uh, I, I hold to that as well. Right. And, and and so the only thing you have to do is just go to Mark chapter one, verse one through three. Mm. And this is something, this is this, this emphasis is something that all the other synoptic gospels point out because all of them look at the advent of John the Baptist, the preparer mm. of the way. And so it says uh, in Mark chapter one, verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of the one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. If you're actually looking at the text, he's quoting from both Isaiah and Malachi. Right. And both of those say that this messenger, this forerunner, is going to be the one who prepares the way for Yahweh when he comes into his temple. Mm. He is the messenger of the covenant. And as we see, John is the one coming and preparing the way for Yahweh. But who does, who does John the Baptist say that he's preparing the way for? He's preparing oh. the way for Jesus. And so, as he says, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So, so, so when you're, so you're saying that when John is saying there's one coming after me, right? He's preparing the way for the Lord and he's quoting Old Testament passages, which refer specifically to Yahweh. So mm -hmm. if John is preparing the way of the Lord, and we know in that context in Mark, that's Jesus, but he's quoting scriptures, which give explicit indication that it's Yahweh, then that's indication there in the text that Jesus is Yahweh. However, yep. what do we do when people say, well, wait a minute, Jesus came in the name of Yahweh. So he is his representative. So they'll come, they'll kind of take that spin on it to show like, yeah, okay, he's preparing the way uh, for Yahweh because Jesus so... Uh, greatly represents Yahweh, that he comes in Yahweh's authority. How, how would you interact with, with someone who gives that response? Yeah, it, it, it's simple because what they are doing is they're they're trying to rely on something called the Shiliak principle. Okay. And uh, if you actually define it in the way that the Jews have historically done, for example, in the Encyclopedia of the Jewish Religion, it defines it in this way. The main point of the Jewish law of agency is expressed in the dictum, a person's agent is as regarded as the person himself. Mm. Therefore, any act committed by a duly appointed agent is regarded as having been committed by the principal. Uh, this, therefore, the, the principal, therefore, bears full responsibility for it when the consequent absence of liability on the part of the agent. So what it's basically saying is that the per, the messenger is like the representative itself mm. or the representative is just like the uh the person who sent him what's the what's now, that principle called again shaliach shaliach okay mm -hmm. however there are a few problems with this the definition doesn't fit the sender agent relationship found in scripture okay. the agent and the sender aren't distinct are always distinguished from one another for example Take, for example, Exodus chapter 7, verse 1. In this passage, God says, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. But there is never an acceptance of honor that rightly belongs to God by Moses. 
Moses never calls himself by the divine name, nor did anyone who saw Moses claim that they saw Yahweh or called him Yahweh. And by the time of the New Testament, the proper term for Shaliach would be apostle. So let's take, for example, the apostles. While the apostles represented Christ, they go out in his name, and he says, whoever hears you hears me. They were never called Jesus, never were called Christ, and were never worshipped as Christ was or called God like Christ was. So in order to say, well, he comes in, in the Father's name, so therefore he could be called God, it's inconsistent with the rest of the Bible. So you're going to have to find another excuse. Hmm. And really, specifically, if you're going to argue that way, we can go back to the angel of the Lord, which says that his name, Yahweh's name, his essence, his personality, his character is within the angel. And hmm. that's the only time, the only person where the name of Yahweh is said to be within someone. Can you can you show us some angel of the Lord passages and kind of walk us through that? Because I think this is this isn't um I mean there are apologists who focus on this and there's obviously literature there but for the average Christian we our knee jerk reaction to someone who denies that the Bible teaches the deity of Christ is to kind of go to the more explicit passages which is completely fine you know yeah. uh John 1:1 1, 1, uh Colossians I think 2:9 Philippians 2:5 through 8 Hebrews 1:3 all perfectly legitimate passages to go to but I think it is useful to kind of go into the Old Testament take a look at the angel of the Lord concept and kind of add that to our arsenal of responses when, when we get into these sorts of conversations with people. Almost definitely. Yeah. So let's go to some of the most explicit passages about the angel of the Lord. Okay. Let's begin at Exodus chapter 23 and we'll look at verses 20. Uh, um, yeah. Verses 20, 21 and 22. Um, here it says, Behold, I send my angel before you, Yahweh is speaking, to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars into pieces. You shall serve Yahweh your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from you. Hmm. Wait a minute. There are some things in this passage that are hard to understand. Yahweh is the one speaking, but he refers to the angel and says for us to be careful because if we don't, he will not pardon our transgressions. Hmm. And then it, he is referred to as Yahweh, the one who will bless your bread and your water. So Yahweh himself is speaking to the angel and calling him Yahweh and saying that he can do things that only God can do. Which is consistent with Hebrews where God says of the son, your throne, O God, is uh, right. So you have yes. this language in the New Testament and then you have these concepts in the Old Testament. They're perfectly compatible with one another and yes. they, they fit very nicely when taken together. But if we adopt some of these other interpretations, oh, well, that's not really what it means. You kind of have this disjointed, you know, 
it's kind of this, you're, you're showing that you're kind of assuming that scripture is kind of disjointed and not connected, but there's a beautiful consistency there. I think that, right. I think that's excellent. Yeah. Oh, you, you immediately reminded me back of Hebrews chapter, Hebrews chapter one, verse eight. Okay. Because like, just, just to go back on our previous topic, Hebrews chapter one is all about the, the, the superior superiority of Christ before angels or above angels. And so the, the author to the Hebrews begins to take quotations from the Old Testament and put them in the words and put them in the mouth of a father for specific topics. He says in verse seven of the angels, he says he referring to somebody else, specifically Christ, makes his angels winds as his and his ministers a flame of fire. Verse eight. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of, of rightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Hmm. So if if one could just refer back to what this what what the father is saying, it's referring back to the Psalms. And this particular psalm, someone could argue, is just this is a this is a messianic psalm referring to like the king of Israel. Right. So the, the king of Israel could be said to be called God in a specific sense. And, and that's cool. He's the representative for God. However, the continual passage refutes that claim. Verse 10, and you, Lord, in this particular reference, is a psalm specifically referencing Yahweh. Mm. So the father is essentially calling Jesus Yahweh. You, Yahweh, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. We literally see here that the Father is speaking to the Son, calling him Yahweh, calling him the Creator, and calling him eternal. But there's a problem. This doesn't make sense, Jeremy, because the Bible says in the book of Isaiah that I alone created. Exactly. And now you're saying that Jesus created with the Father. That means the Father wasn't alone. What's up with that, bro? The only problem is the person making that objection assumes that the word Yahweh can only refer to the Father. But mm -hmm. as we see here from the lips of the Father himself— he calls Jesus Yahweh. So is Jesus Yahweh? Yes. Is the Father Yahweh? Yes. Is Jesus the Father? No. Contradiction. <laughs> no, I, can hear, I can just hear people when they listen to this. They're going to say, oh, yeah. I, I listen to Muslims all the time and they make that. that. Because and, we're and, aware and the of problem. these things and people bring these things up as though we've never thought about these things. This is we can anticipate these sorts of things. So why, why don't you interact with that common you know, response there? Yeah, the, the only problem is the person making that objection is assuming Unitarianism mm. and not actually following what the Bible says. Sure. The Bible says that that as as we see, it portrays the name Yahweh is refer in reference to the being of God. Mm. So three persons, as we see, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit are portrayed as Yahweh. And yet it says with the very same breath that there is only one God. Now, let me provide you with a little bit of an example of that. Let's go to 1 Corinthians. Um, let's see. 
I just I love how we're in the scriptures. I love this. Sometimes I talk about philosophical stuff and theological stuff, but I like how you're walking us through the text. This is excellent. Oh, of course. I, I, I love walking through the scriptures in relation to this. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And let's begin at verse 4. Okay. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Now, a lot of people won't be able to catch this. But if you're actually reading the Greek New Testament, what you will find is that the Apostle Paul is adapting the Septuagint version of the Shema of Deuteronomy 6.4 and applying it to the revelation that has been given to us in Jesus Christ, to the Father and the Son. We know the Shema well. Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. So here in verse 8, um, well, in, in verse 6, the term God, Yahweh is our God, Eloheinu, is used of the Father. But the term Yahweh, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad, is used of Jesus. And specifically, it says it is through Yahweh, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Dia plus the genitive. He is the creator, the personal means by which all things were made and through whom we exist. The only reason you exist today, says the Apostle Paul, is because Jesus made you and he is upholding your mm. existence this is the same thing that he says in colossians chapter uh chapter 1 verses 16 and 17 where it says for by him were all things that were made in heaven and on earth visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities all things are created by him and for him he is before all things and in him all things to nest they hold together they find their existence and their substance in him mm. No one would be able to say this about a mere man. Nobody. That's excellent stuff, man. I love it. All right. Well, okay. So, so let's kind of uh, zoom out a little bit from the text. Now, sure. uh, what about defending the deity of Christ historically? I mean, there is that common garbage claim that the deity of Christ was invented at the Council of Nicaea, and that the you know the teaching that Jesus is God didn't exist prior to that um, in the in the early church. How would you respond to this terrible? I mean, I mean, you you're on TikTok. You know all the sorts of crazy things that people say, right? We were just talking before we went live. Everyone on TikTok's a scholar and an expert, and they say all sorts of crazy stuff. <laughs> um, but it's just silliness. Exactly. How would we um, demonstrate that the deity of Christ? Uh, is was well known, well taught with clarity prior to the Council of Nicaea within the first three centuries of um, Christianity. Easy. The best thing to do is look at the early church fathers. Um, and I'm going to go through a, a large slew of them, but we'll we'll stop at the end of each quotation to see uh, to see what what thoughts that you have. Okay. Um, so uh, I'm I'm sharing my screen. Are you guys seeing it? 
Yep, it's up. It's up on the screen there. Nice. Uh, so let's look at the extra, uh, the earliest extra biblical writings about Jesus that we find in the Apostolic Fathers, the Greek Apologists, and then the Latin Fathers. First, let's look at the Didache. The Didache is one of the uh, earliest writings that we have outside of the early church. It's a church manual okay. uh, about Christian living. And in chapter 7, it describes the institution of baptism, the, the sacrament of entrance into the Christian church. And so he says, but concerning baptism, this way shall you baptize. Having first taught all these things, so catechesis, baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit in living or running water. But if you have not living water, then baptize in other water. And if you are not able in cold, then in warm. But if you have neither, then pour water on the head thrice in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So here in the Didache, it specifically says that baptism is to be done in the triune name. But but Eli, I thought the Trinity wasn't invented until 325 AD. <laughs> and notice the language there reflects Matthew and the Gospels in the name singular of the Father, the Father and, and of the Son and, and of the Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. Yeah, excellent. Exactly. And the Didache, would you say that's a, a, a who? A, what's the authorship of the Didache? What's what? What do people think? And do you do you think it's a, le a legitimate connection, or or do you um, think we can't tell? It's just a really important early, um, you know, uh, document, but uh, we don't really know who the author is. What do you uh, think? Some of some of the tradition says that it was actually written by the apostles. Mm. Uh, the same thing that is said of the uh, of the Apostles' Creed. But I'm not I'm not necessarily sure all the evidence that comes with that. But okay. we can we can be very sure that it is early, and it was circulated a lot amongst the uh, amongst the traveling uh, traveling preachers in the time of uh, of the early church. It most likely was written uh, either at or uh, around 70 A.D. So it's one mm. of the earliest documents that we have. Cool. All right. And uh, speaking of 70, 70 AD and the earliest documents that we have, let's go to the early church father, Clement of Rome. Uh, in his first epistle, which many would argue is his only epistle, the rest of the two are, uh, are spurious. Uh, he says this in his second chapter because he's writing to the Corinthians. Moreover, ye were all distinguished by humility and were in no respect puffed up with pride but yielded obedience rather than extorted it, and were more willing to give than to receive. Pay attention to this. Content with the provision which God had made for you, and carefully attending to his words, you were inwardly filled with his doctrine, and his sufferings were before your eyes. Thus a profound and abundant peace was given to you all, and you had an insatiable desire for doing good, while a full outpouring of the Holy Spirit was upon you all. So what is Clement saying here? He says that God's doctrine was filled, it filled the Corinthians, but he also says that God's sufferings were before your eyes. Eli, I thought God can't suffer. Hmm. The only way that it makes sense is if Jesus is God and that he took on flesh. Right. That's good. So here we have one of my favorite documents. 
uh, a lot of people have debate over this particular uh, this particular document. Its official title is the Epistle of Mathetes to Diognetus, or uh, a disciple to Diognetus. Many have argued that it is the uh, the term the the author Mathetes is actually Polycarp, who we will get into uh, go into detail later on. Okay, but here. In chapter 7, he's describing the advent of Jesus Christ and the gospel that has been presented to the world. It's one of our first explanatory and uh, apologetic documents of the Christian faith towards a pagan. And so uh, the, the, the epistle says, He, that is God, did not, uh, as one might have imagined, send to men any servant or angel, or created being, or ruler, or any one of those who bear sway over earthly things, or one of those to whom the government of all things in the heavens has been entrusted, but the very creator and fashioner of the heavens, by whom he made the heavens, by whom he enclosed the sea within its proper bounds. He then goes on to say, this messenger he sent to them, was it then, as one might conceive, for the purpose of exercising tyranny or of inspiring fear and terror? By no means, but under the influence of clemency and meekness. As a king sends his son, who is also a king, so he sent him. As God he sent him. As mm. to men he sent him. As a savior he sent him. And as seeking to persuade, not to compel us. For violence has no place in the character of God. Mm. So the epistle to Diognesus is explicitly saying that the person who was sent to us is not merely one who has control over physical governments, but the very creator and fashioner of all things. And he was sent to us as God and as savior, right. seeking to persuade us and not to subjugate us for violence has no place in the character of God. Mm. Good stuff, brother. That's awesome. All right, so let's. Um, uh, we have Ignatius. Okay, well, we definitely want to cover Ignatius. Um, right. Yeah. There, go for there, it. Yeah, there are a few others. Um, which, which ones? I, I have at least probably three more. Ignatius, Justin Martyr, and Tertullian. Which one do you want to uh, look at specifically? Which one do you think offers the most clearest presentation of the deity of Christ, which we can just explode out of the water the erroneous claim that this was invented? Uh, at the Council of Nicaea or, you know, somewhere after that. Yeah. Uh, Tertullian. All right, let's because do it. Because this one I think is, is, is one of the, is one of the funniest or one of the most fun okay. because uh, Tertullian is one of the earliest Latin fathers, basically the father of Latin theology. And he's the one who, who first coins the term or uses the term uh, Trinitas mm. in order to argue against the modalists. And so he says here, in the second chapter of his work, Contra Praxius, or Against Praxius. We, however, as we indeed have always done, and more especially since we have been better instructed by the paraclete, who leads men into all truth, believe that there is only one God. But under the following dispensation, or economia, economy, as it is called, that this one God also has a son, his word, who proceeded from himself, by whom all things were made, and without whom nothing was made. Him we believe to have been sent by the Father into the Virgin, and to have been born of her, being both man and God, the Son of Man and the Son of God, and to have been called by the name of Jesus Christ. 
We believe him to have suffered, died, and be buried according to the scriptures. And after he had been raised again by the Father and taken back into heaven, to be sitting at the right hand of the Father, and that he will come to judge the quick and the dead, who also sent from heaven from the Father according to his own promise, the Holy Ghost, the paraclete, the sanctifier of the faith of those who believe in the Father and in the Son and in the Holy Ghost. That this rule of faith has come down to us from the beginning of the gospel, even before any of the older heretics, much more before Praxius, a pretender of yesterday, will be apparent both from the lateness of date, which marks all heresies, and also from the absolutely novel character of our newfangled Praxius. Mm. So here he says specifically that Jesus is the word of God who proceeds from the Father. He is both man and God, the Son of Man and the Son of God. He died and was buried according to the scriptures. He was raised again and is seated in heaven, and he has sent us the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the sanctifier of truth. And that truth, that faith, is those who believe in the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And this is the regular fide, the rule of faith that has always been taught in the churches since the beginning of the gospel. Mm. Excellent stuff, brother. I love it. Now, now let's go move on to kind of the, the broader question of the coherency of the concept. So suppose, sure. suppose someone were to grant, okay, you know, the Bible teaches the deity of Christ. Jesus is both God and man, uh, the incarnation. Uh, the early church believed this, okay? It wasn't invented later on. They clearly believed it. We can document it. Um, but the idea that Jesus is truly God and truly man is a logical contradiction. And if something's a logical contradiction, then it cannot be true uh, because it's incoherent. How would you respond to the objection that the concept of the hypostatic union, the incarnation, uh, that these things are illogical? Uh, how would you engage in an objection of that sort? Yeah, it really, it, it comes with an, a misunderstanding of the hypostatic union. Okay. Because a, a true contradiction would be something that is A and not A at the same time and in the same way. Right. We believe that Christ is God in one way because he has one nature, and Christ is man in another way because he has a different nature. And those natures are united in one person without mixture or confusion, as the, um, as the creed of Chalcedon, as the definition of Chalcedon says. So it is be it is possible that because of the union denominated by the person of Christ, that the names and attributes of one nature can be said of the other, as we see in scripture, God died, or God purchased the church with his own blood, or the author of life died. But those natures don't mix, because if you mixed the natures, you have neither God nor man. And that's that's not something that any of the fathers expressed. Mm. That would be what we call Eutychianism. But the true doctrine is not that man became God, but that God came down as a man in the person of Jesus Christ. Mm. As Gregory of Nazianzus once said, that which God has not assumed, he has not healed. But that which is taken on by God is saved. Only man can represent human lives but only God can take the punishment of God and survive. Mm, excellent. Now, what if, what would you, how would you respond to someone and say, well, wait a minute, if God takes on a human nature, does that not affect the doctrine of the immutability of God? The idea that God does not change. It seems like there is a change 
God is without a human nature. And then now there's another state of affairs in which he takes on a human nature. Uh, how, how can you hold that in, in any consistent way? Sure. It, it, it's simply it's simply following Ephesians 2, okay. where Scripture says that even though Christ was in the very form of God, the morphe to theou, he did not um, he did not take equality with God, a thing to be held on to at all costs, but instead uh, emptied himself. Hmm. But but the Apostle Paul never uses the term emptying or kenosis literally. As we see in the next verse, he says he emptied himself by taking on something else, by taking on the form of a servant, by being made in the likeness of man and being found in human form. Now, we believe that God is powerful enough to take on another nature without compromising his his divine nature. When we speak of God's immutability, we're talking about God's nature. His nature doesn't change. He cannot lie. He cannot go back on his promises. And that's why he promised that he would enter into human flesh beforehand. Now, as we now saw when, in the Old Testament, when you say that God's nature does not change, this is important because when we say that he takes on a human nature, you made mention before that when he takes on human nature and you have these two natures um, existing within the person of Christ, mm -hmm. they are not intermingled right. or confused. So in some mysterious way, these two natures are in the one person, but they don't get mixed. And therefore the divine nature is not uh, the human nature does not tamper with the essence of the divine nature. They, in a mysterious right. place, a mysterious way, a mysterious way, stay distinct from each other, and hence the doctrine of immutability doesn't get affected. Is that is that? that yes, I got it? exactly. Okay. God doesn't have to. God doesn't have to become less of a god, less mm. god, in order to take on human flesh. We believe right. that God is powerful enough to enter into His own creation without uh, conflicting with His own nature. If God mm. is able to create the world. With ease, he's able to enter into it with even greater ease, mm. so to speak, because it, it doesn't take any effort for God. Yeah. Oh, that's good stuff, man. So we have a biblical defense. We have historical defense. And we can show that it does not violate any canons of logic. Now, can you uh, briefly explain, and this, this will be my last part, uh, only because I want to get to the questions. And, and actually, those who have kept hearing me promote the epic online Calvinism conference, that's tomorrow. So I actually have to go to bed early because I will be running it from 10 in the morning to four and I'm the first oh, speaker. Boy. So I have to finish uh, my last bits of my presentation on Calvinism and Molinism. So, um, so we're going to try to wrap things up a bit, but I still want to interact with some of the comments. There are some questions and there are some comments that I'd like you to interact. They're not asking you a question, but they're definitely worthy of responding to. So um, right. that'll be fun to, to jump in. Um, but how do you relate mystery with it's not contradictory? So someone might be hearing you say, okay, well, you don't think it's contradictory, but you're just slapping the label mystery on it unless you think you could explain the metaphysics of how two natures can uh, inhabit a, pers a single person. So, uh, when, so would you claim to know how two natures can inhabit one person without intermingling or, uh, you know, change to, with respect to the divine essence? Do, do you claim to know how that works? If so, explain it. If not, then tell us why that's not just a, a cop-out. You know, you're just saying it's mysterious, you know, right. in reality, it's contradictory. The, the, the reason, the reason why, um, if, if I, 
to to be asked the question can i explain how the two natures work no but i also don't know how quantum physics works so right. so my my limited brain cannot know most of the things that are found within nat the natural world even much more uh do i not understand the the spiritual world and how right. god works i don't know how god can transmutate water into wine but i believe it happened Right. I don't know how God can multiply bread and fish uh, to to feed 5,000 people, but I believe it happened. I don't know how God can literally raise the dead, but I believe it happened. Right. So I like this, I, I like this here. Uh, the sire says, you may know that something is the case without knowing how it is the case. I think that's, exactly. I think that's correct. So I don't I don't have to ex to know how to explain everything in order to know what it is or what it means. I don't have to um, to to fully comprehend something in order to apprehend it. Mm. We we have to constantly make the distinction between apprehension and comprehension. Mm. I can I can get a concept without knowing how all of it works intricately. I know how a car works. I mean, I can know what we can do to make a car work instead of, you know, knowing all of the intricacies, uh, intricacies right. of the car. Right, right. You, we just have sufficient data in scripture to show that it's not contradictory. Given the More information we're given, it's not contradictory. We can demonstrate that even though we cannot positively explain the metaphysics of how it works, just like I can't explain the metaphysics of creation out of nothing, water into wine, walking on water, these sorts of things. Yeah. Okay. All right. Excellent. Well, I hope folks benefit from that. We have biblical defense, we have a historical defense, and we have a coherence defense. I think that's excellent. And I'm sure Jeremy could expand on each of this. And there's literature on all of this. I actually have, let me see. Uh, there we go. This is a good book by a theologian, uh, Robert Raymond, Jesus, the divine Messiah, uh, the new and old Testament witness. So if you want to jump into like evidence for the deity of Christ, this is an excellent uh, resource. If you want to check that out. Right. And, uh, which book did you, were you going to suggest a book there? Yes. I also recommend one that is very helpful to me. Um, Our God is Triune. Um, it's actually a, a production from multiple people, but especially produced by Michael Burgos, uh, Michael Burgos Jr. It also has stuff from uh, Hiram Diaz, uh, Edward Dalcor, Vocab Malone, and Anthony Rogers. So this is a nice. really good resource. Is that on Amazon? Uh, yes, I believe it is. Do they have it on Kindle? Who knows? Know. Let me check that out. I'm looking that up right now. I'm a, see, I'm a, because I'm always driving. I don't have time to sit and read, but I do like to have, what, what is it called? Our God is Triune? Yes. Our God is Triune, Essays in Biblical Theology. Essays, okay. Oh, come on. No, <gasps> is it on Kindle? Is it on Kindle? Let me see. Hold up. I'm sorry to do. Uh, mm, I don't know. I'd have to look into it. Kindle. It's on Kindle Unlimited. Uh, I'll look into it later. Sorry, I'm a little Kindle nerd. No, you're fine. And, and, and trust me, I'm 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 weird because I listen to podcasts and stuff all the time because I have to commute to seminary and back. Um, but I I just I love the feel of books. It actually helps me memorize things a lot better because okay. I sort of I sort of have a photographic memory because I can remember. Um, not specifically the specific page that I'm at, mm. but where I was when I was reading it. So I can go back in my mind to see what I'm reading on the page. If I remember. So you're a physical I'm... book guy. You're, you like to read the, yeah, I would like to be that way. I just don't have the time. I actually have an app called uh, voice dream and I right. have thousands of books on PDF and it just reads it to me. 
Um, so I read on my 45 to 50 minute drive into work and it's been super helpful, but yeah, I, I wish, I mean, I have a bunch of these books. I have read lots of them, but I, they usually stay there cause I, I can't carry the giant thick bad boys wherever I go, but, um, but it sure books. looks pretty. It looks pretty. Yeah. I, I haven't read all these books, but I've read a little bit of all of them, if that makes sense. <laughs> um, some good the goodies in the background there, but nevertheless, um, let's kind of jump into some of these questions here. Um, and, uh, the sire asks, do you think Jesus being the logos refers to Proverbs eight? Um, not necessarily. I mean, because the, the word logos doesn't appear in Proverbs eight or, or the term word doesn't appear in logos eight, uh, or Proverbs eight. Proverbs eight is primarily describing wisdom, lady wisdom. And, um, many of the fathers just, uh, saw Jesus as wisdom in, in Proverbs eight, because he's mm -hmm. called the wisdom of God, uh, in first, um, yeah, in first Corinthians chapter one. But if you actually read, um, Proverbs eight, uh, many of the Arians would say that the term, um, it, it says in Proverbs 8, that the Lord created me at the beginning of his works. Mm -hmm. However, if you actually look at the uh, the original language, it simply says that the Lord possessed me mm -hmm. at the beginning of his works. And if you actually are looking at it historically, the Nicene Creed is a biblical exegesis of Proverbs chapter 8. So a, a lot of our Aryan friends love to use Proverbs 8, but the Nicene Creed is essentially the refutation, uh, an exegetical creedal refutation of the Aryans and their exegesis of Proverbs chapter 8. So mm. I, I personally don't, but the fathers did, and I can understand why they did. Mm. Excellent. Thank you for that. Uh, Sudafi Meb says, Hey guys, nice stuff. What kind of app are you using? It seems to be very convenient to use Greek and English side by side. I appreciate your response. I, I think he's referring to the one that yeah, we shared the, uh, the yeah. olive tree app that I used. Right. And, uh, it, it's, it's really good because, um, well, it's, it's, you're, you're going to have to buy the actual software that I'm using. Uh, it's easy to download on your computer. The, 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 by the olive tree app is free, but you're going to have to spend a pretty penny to get the, um, the software that I'm using for the NA28 because it has Mounts' uh, Greek parsing as well as the uh, Greek to English dictionary of the New Testament. Okay. All right. Thank you for that. Um, let's see here. Someone says here, the Holy Spirit proceeds or is taken out of the Father alone through the Logos. Would you agree with that? Well, something similar to that. Um because what what they're talking about is something that will, as as you can see, as you go throughout the uh, the comment section, it's it's talking about the question of the filioque, which okay. is a a theological distinction between the East and the West, and really one of the main distinctions that caused the split between the East and the West in 1054 AD. Um, it's specifically about the nature of uh, how the log how the um, how the spirit. Uh, relates to the Father and the Son. Right. Does the Spirit, as the original uh, Nicene Creed said, proceed from the Father, or does he proceed from the Father and the Son? That's what the term filioque is. Mm -hmm. The Roman Church, uh, by its own authority, claiming its own authority, changed uh, the Nicene Creed and added the term filioque. Uh, outside of the uh, the regular way of doing things, which would require the approval of all the other patriarchs. And that caused a, a pretty big disagreement 
Yeah. And, and, and so now we're, we're dealing theologically about how we properly articulate um, the spirit proceeding from the father in relation to the son without making the son another originator of the spirit. Mm. And so many have argued, including Augustine and St. Maximus the Confessor, I take their opinion on this, that the Spirit proceeds from the Father through the Son, because the Son says that all that the Father has is mine, but he does it in a way that keeps the Father the principium of all things, especially okay. in relation to the divine nature. Because the term God, in multiple times in the New Testament, we see it described of Jesus. But when people generally refer to as refer to a person as God in the Old Testament and the New Testament, they're primarily referring to the Father, because as the Eastern theologians would say, the Father is the fount of deity. I don't mm. necessarily use that phrase, but I, I understand what they mean. Mm, excellent. And Joshua goes on to say, as Eve was taken from Adam's existing substance through the operation of the Lagos, so too the Spirit is taken from God the Father's substance through the operation of the Lagos. Would you agree with that? Yeah, that's that's definitely an Eastern relationship uh, or an Eastern uh, explanation of it. So mm. I, I can I can understand where he's going to. I wouldn't say that I would fully subscribe to it, but right. yeah, it's, it's I have to give more context too because I don't really know where he's coming from. It, it's uh, it's coming from that analogy. Okay, um, disciple says great stuff. Are we going to look at the dual powers of heaven stuff too? In the passages where there are clearly two people named Yahweh, what what is he referring to there? Are you familiar with that? Yes, yes, he's actually referring to something noted by um, by Daniel Boyarin, a Jewish scholar, Michael Heiser, a Christian scholar, and Alan F. Segal, another Jewish scholar. Where um, at least if you go back to Second Second Temple Judaism and even farther, in Jewish the Jewish belief was that there were two powers in heaven, a visible Yahweh and an invisible Yahweh who interacted with one another and both are called Yahweh. And there are multiple passages in scripture that show us this. One of them is Genesis chapter 19, where uh, judgment is falling on Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah. And we see in scripture, Yahweh rained fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah from Yahweh out of the heavens. So we see that there are two Yahwehs, one on earth and one in heaven, and they're both interacting with one another. I love and it. You mentioned to... it so leisurely, like you're like, wait, what? <laughs> you don't catch it unless you're looking and you're, you're looking closely. Right. And then um, the other passage that I'll look at is, uh, is um, Isaiah chapter 48, mm. where Yahweh is the one speaking. He says, I'm going to call Cyrus. I'm going to do all these things. Listen to me. He even used the phrase, I am he. There is no God besides me. He then says, I have not spoken in secret, and now Yahweh and his spirit have sent me. So this Yahweh is stating that another one named Yahweh and his spirit have sent him. Interesting. That's good stuff, man. I love it. Uh, the sire asks, can you give your thoughts whether Justin Martyr thought Christ was created? Yeah, Justin, Justin Martyr thought of no such thing in relation to Christ. Um, I'm actually really glad that we taught, that we just referenced um, uh, the events of Sodom and Gomorrah hmm. because he says in relation to his um, uh, Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trifo, chapter 128, he says, and that Christ being Lord and God, the Son of God, and appearing formally in power as man and angel, and in the glory of fire as at the bush. So he's saying that Jesus was the one who gave the divine name to Moses in the burning bush. 
which actually shows his immutability and in and mm. eternality. So mm. also was manifested at the judgment executed on Sodom and has been demonstrated fully by what has been said. He also says in his first apology, the Jews accordingly being throughout of opinion that it was the father of the universe who spoke to Moses, though he who spoke to him was indeed the son of God who was called both angel and apostle, are justly charged, both by the spirit of prophecy and by Christ himself, with knowing neither the Father nor the Son. For they who affirm that the Son is the Father are proved neither to have become acquainted with the Father, nor to know that the Father of the universe has a Son, who also, being the first begotten of the Word, is even God." And how of old he appeared in the shape of fire and in the likeness of an angel to Moses and to the other prophets. But now in the times of your reign, having, as we before said, become man by a virgin according to the counsel of the Father for the salvation of those who believe on him, he endured to be set at naught and to suffer that by dying and rising again, he might conquer death. Hmm. So here he specifically says that he's God the son of God begotten before all worlds, that he is the one who was revealed to Moses, who revealed the divine name to Moses. And he appeared at Sodom and Gomorrah. So to, for anyone to try to emphasize that, uh, that Justin Martyr believed that Christ was created, it's absolutely, uh, uh, well, just plain wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Uh, so the sire goes on to ask if Jesus is divine, then why does he inherit his name? Philippians 2. Hebrews 1, 4. Yeah. And and the simple the simple reason is because in both passages, the incarnation, he humbles himself. And therefore, uh, the inheriting name is the is the exaltation of him back to his rightful place in glory. And we see that because when it says uh, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father we see that phrase is actually a reference back to Isaiah where Yahweh says, come to me and be saved. Every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess allegiance to me. Hmm. That's good stuff. Um, I believe that is the last question here that I see. Um, I thought you did an excellent job, man. I'm going to have to listen to this one again on my way to work next week uh, so that I could take it all in. It's such, you did such an excellent job. Um, why don't you take an opportunity just for a few moments in light of um, the deity of Christ? Why don't you take a short opportunity to explain the gospel and why this is such a central uh, issue to the gospel? And um you know, just take it away as you feel led, man. Uh, lay out the gospel. I know that all sorts of people listen to this channel, and we sometimes talk about abstract theology and philosophy. But uh, why don't you close us off with a practical, clear presentation of the gospel and why we do this uh, in the first place? Right. Well, again, what have we been talking about? We've been talking about the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is in and of itself, is the core of the gospel. It's the core of what is described in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 5. It's the core of what, of what um, Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. Who is Jesus? And what do we have to do with him? The simple thing is, Jesus is God. 
He, for us and for our salvation, came down from heaven. He is the only Son of God, begotten of the Father before all time. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. He was born of a virgin and made true man, become true man. He lived a perfect life that we could never live because we, in and of ourselves, are fallen. Because of Adam's sin, we have sinned. And we incur God's judgment. But Christ, who is true God and true man, lived a perfect life. He died in our place, taking on our punishment. He had to be God and man, because only a man can truly represent us. But only God can take the punishment of God. And only God can give life to fallen men. So he had to be true God and true man. But he did not just die for us, taking on our punishment. But he rose from the dead, defeating death and Satan, obtaining victory over the powers of the world, and satisfying God's wrath against those who believe in him. He has ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, where he now rules and reigns until every enemy shall be put under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And now he is interceding for those who believe in him so that they will be saved to the uttermost for he ever lives to make intercession for them. So what does that mean for you? You're a sinner. You incur God's wrath. And without the work of Christ placed on your behalf, you will be destroyed. So the king has come and he says, all who come to me, I will give you rest. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, for my burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls. The question now is, what will you do with Jesus? And what will Christ do with you? The, the proper answer is to repent and believe. What does repent mean? It means simply to change your mind. To, to turn from loving yourself and your sin and turning to Jesus. It's the about face of what we say all the time in the military, going from one direction and coming to the other. And what is faith? It's placing your trust upon Jesus. It's recognizing who he is, acknowledging that he did this on your behalf, and trusting that because of his work on your behalf, you will stand before God blameless. Have faith in him, and you will find him to be a perfect savior. Well, thank you. So, thank you so much for that, brother. That's an excellent place to end giving uh, people something to think about. And um, I hope that this discussion uh, is intellectually stimulating, spiritually enriching, right? And causes us to ultimately, when we think about the implications of all this, um, causes us to stand in awe of our great God and Savior who became a man and dwelt among us for 33 years. That's uh, an insane concept to even just think about um but that is the christian religion that is the the beautiful story that we have a story of redemption a story of a god who um reconciles man to himself so thank you so much jeremy i really appreciate this and i know that a lot of people are going to go back and, and listen to this i know i am and um i just hope that uh, god continues to use you and um i definitely want you back again in the future so hopefully we can do a lot more together um i appreciate you would you like to say any uh, any last second things to maybe if, if you can just redirect people where to find you where to find your content right you know things like that and then we'll wrap things up 
Of course, it, it is, uh, as always, an incredible honor to be here and to serve the body of Christ. If you guys want to uh, know where I am and see what I'm doing, uh, just follow me on TikTok at uh, BlackDoctor21. Follow me on YouTube uh, at the Black Doctor, and also just support me. Um, uh, my Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash the Black Doctor is where I do most of my paid content for just uh, $5 a month. You can get the top tier and get access to all of my audiobooks, all of my live streams, and all of my lessons on church history, where you have two, two, uh, two seminaries worth of knowledge for a very small fraction of the price. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jeremy. Thank you guys for listening in and being so nice in the comments. I see some interaction there, but it's been respectful. So I greatly appreciate that. Um, I tell people all the time, I take great pride in the comment section of my videos. Sometimes you got some crazy stuff going on, but for the most part, people play nice and they have some good discussion. So thank right. you so much for that. Until next time, guys, uh, that's it for this episode. Take care and God bless. Bye-bye.